Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning on the show today. Global BC's Keith Baldry, BC Today's Shannon Waters, and the Vancouver Sun's Rob Shaw. Later on in the show, we'll discuss a looming age education showdown with BCTF President Glenn Hansman. And now time to welcome the panel. Keith, Shannon, Rob, how you guys doing? Good, Shane. Excellent. Uh, wow, what a crazy finish to the legislature in this fall sitting. Uh, why don't we start there? Uh, we talked a lot about this last week, the controversy surrounding the Speaker. Uh, Craig James, uh, the clerk, the sergeant-at-arms, uh, basically perp-walked out of the legislature. Uh, they're now suspended with pay. We still don't know entirely what's going on there. That controversy extended into the final sitting of the legislature, or the final days of the sitting this week. Um, off the top, uh, the Speaker himself, I was caught uh, on two fronts. One, he... he took a pretty good snap at Richard Zussman, who tried to question him in the hallway, your colleague Keith, uh, basically saying that maybe it's the media that should do uh, due diligence. Uh, and also in a statement to Canadian press reporter Laura Kane, he took issue with the word investigation, basically saying it's wildly irresponsible and nonsense and things like that. I don't think he's making his job any easier, Keith. No, and it's, uh, it's <laughs> he's not helping himself. And he's got Two people working in that office with him now, um, Alan Mullen, who we talked about last week, and Wally Opel, the former Attorney General, all three of them have different versions of events or of, uh, of things when you when you ask questions of them. Opel has contradicted Plekis a couple of times on whether or not it's an investigation or not. Uh, Plekis and, and Mullen seem to be on different pages when it comes to describing exactly the, the background to some of this. So my take is that they're very lucky this session ended when it did, because if, if it extended into next week, we'd have four more days of a chaotic, disruptive nature, which would increasingly have focused the uh, everybody's attention on the speaker in a very negative light. His credibility was being shredded daily. Uh, the NDP was propping him up in, in office with a, a distinct lack of enthusiasm. And I think if this had gone on much longer, uh, it would have reached even beyond the crisis levels that it was at when the House uh, adjourned on Tuesday. Uh, Shannon, again to this statement uh, f uh, from Mr. Plekis to, to Laura Kane with the Canadian Press, uh, and I'll just read this one sentence here. The notion he's engaged, as Mr. Mullen, in any form of investigation is beyond doing due diligence on concerns expressed to or observed by my office is further nonsense. To do less than due diligence would be wildly irresponsible. So now we're arguing about investigation, the word in whatever connotation uh, that comes. But that's one that Mr. Mullen himself used, yes? Yeah, and Mullen spoke to media and basically said that he was hired by the Speaker's office in January, and part of why he was hired, among sort of other duties that the Speaker had in mind for him, were looking into these concerns that the Speaker had about the clerk and the sergeant-at-arms. If Plekis wants to call it due diligence, I mean, I guess, but it's an awful lot of due diligence between January, when Mullen says he was brought on board, and in August, when we were told that... Uh, the concerns that had been raised by the speaker were referred to the RCMP. So there, there's a large, a long period of time in there where Mullen was doing something, um, due diligence, investigation, whatever you want to call it. Um, when Mullen was asked sort of specifically whether he built the case against James and Lenz before it was referred to law enforcement, he said that he'd been involved in it, not that he had built it, um, but he didn't take objection to the word investigation at that point in time. So that seems to be somewhere that Mullen and 
and Plekis are on different pages. Rob, uh, you've described uh, Mr. Plekis as a bit of a pariah, obviously, with his breaking with the B.C. Liberals. Um, yes, the ledge session is over, uh, and maybe in some ways that will damper this controversy somewhat, but uh, how do you see his sort of future unfolding here? We have a recall effort that's sitting on the sidelines that possibly could come to fruition. Uh, you know, We're going to have a, a spring sitting where this thing will probably flare to life, if not before that. How, how do you see him sort of progressing in this office? Yeah, I mean, well, if this investigation, and it is an investigation, doesn't uh, doesn't turn up, uh, you know, some criminal convictions, uh, I think the Speaker's toast, uh, and Mr. Mullen is going to be toast long before that. So there's a short lifespan uh, for some people in that office, I, I think, for sure. We have to understand that, you know, I, I know some people have said, well, how come MLAs didn't see this coming? No MLAs are watching Daryl Plekis. He exists in this vacuum uh, down here because of the unique circumstances that we're in. You know, the Liberals don't want to deal with him at all. They hate him for the way he took Christy Clark out by threatening to quit a caucus meeting uh, and then quit basically anyways afterwards, but negotiated in secret and no-showed meetings and, you know, um, uh, took the speaker's job. Uh, they boycotted all his events for the last 14 months, and so he has had no supervision from the Liberals if they were even going to do that. The NDP flipped him on the Liberals and then left him alone. They didn't advise him, they didn't brief him, they didn't really do anything with him. So he sits in this building where half the people hate his guts, leave the room when he walks in. He basically hired a friend uh, on the taxpayer dime. Alan Mullen is his friend to come down here and, and give him eyes and ears and rooms that he's not welcome in. And so the LAMPSI, which is this legislative management committee, the LAMPSI group that's supposed to oversee him has only met three times since the last election, and they're not talking about any of this. There is no supervision. And the normal way that the Speaker works is they're independent, but the party who puts the Speaker up keeps tabs on them because we saw with Linda Reid and the Liberals that when you leave a Speaker to their own devices, they very quickly land themselves in the glue. And Linda Reid wanted to spend all tons of money, and it took the Premier's office and Rich Coleman threatening to, to cost her a job to bring her back in line. There's no one who can bring Plekis back in line, and there's no one who has any idea what he's doing. Uh, so that's the real problem here, and that's the. I think that worries Mike Farmer, and I think it worries the New Democrats that even if they plow him through this controversy for their own political gain, he is going to sit in that office completely on his own agenda, and it will blow back on somebody at some point. All right, well, why don't we discuss that? I mean, how do you, uh, the Legislative Assembly, the Speaker's Office, essentially a ministry running that, um, is void from freedom of information request laws. Uh, it operates, uh, as Rob said, in a vacuum. So, so Keith, how do, you, how do you manage or bring accountability to this one part of the legislature that seems to be something of a thorn uh, on and off through the years? I mean, how do you, how do you oversight this thing? That's the riddle, and Rob's correct. I mean, he, Plekis is off on an island. He's all by himself. Even the Democrats have told me this, that, you know, he's, he's, got no, he's got no friends. He's got no support system. He's got Alan Mullen, who hasn't got a clue how the legislature works or, or the history of the place. Wally Opal now has been parachuted in there, which at first I thought was a good move. Now I'm beginning to think, I don't know, that just further muddies the waters. Um, but in some sense, uh, Plekis is bulletproof here because the NDP desperately need him 
to be in that office. They can't afford to put one of their own members in there because it would reduce the majority to a, to a single seat, and that's very precarious. And it's uh, so it's, it's an extraordinary situation, and again, unprecedented, the word we use constantly in describing this particular controversy, comes into play again because we've never had a situation where a speaker has never really, is not really part of either of the caucuses, and it's uh, and we get no, no support system. So in terms of where where this goes, Plekis sort of has everybody uh, rather than everybody having him. And I think uh, he's going to be able to continue to work in that position despite the controversies. And uh, even if we have... Uh, you know, an investigation that comes back with nothing on uh, either of them, the on either the clerk or the sergeant arms. The pressure on the NDP will be enormous to t- to take Plekis out, and I'm not convinced they've got the appetite to do that yet. Uh, former Speaker Claude Richmond raised the idea of extending FOI laws to the Legislative Assembly to the Speaker's office. I know Rob's not a fan of that. Shannon, what do you think? Well, I mean, it does seem like it. Right now, it seems like an appealing idea. I mean, I do think you, you would have sort of some concerns around what that would mean for sort of the, the proprietary and unique nature of the Speaker's office, but it has been an incredibly frustrating week, I think, especially for reporters who are in the legislature, but also for people from outside who are interested and want to know what's going on here. There's a lack of transparency, a lack of accountability, and there just seems to be a general lack of interest in providing any kind of information about what it is that is going on here. I mean, Plekis has been um, sort of very, he got very snippy with Richard. Um, One of the reporters from Czech TV scrummed him all the way down the hallway and out of the building just asking him to answer questions about what's going on in his office. And there's no interest there from the speaker or Mullen, who does seem to like to talk to reporters when he gets the opportunity. (laughs) Um, But there's no interest there. There's no accountability coming from any of the politicians. None of the House leaders are willing to disclose even the basics of what they were told in this meeting before they moved this motion that set this entire crazy week off. So I can I can see the appeal of wanting to extend the FOI to the speaker's office. I don't see it. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I said Rob's not a fan of it. I should probably rephrase that and say he's skeptical it probably actually could happen in reality. But I'll let you speak for yourself there, Rob. Well, I think it would be a great move. And I was talking about it like, oh, God, I don't know, 10 years ago now. I mean, for a long time, I was the only guy who ever covered these Lampsy meetings and LA expenses and transparency. And, uh, but I, it won't happen for one of the main reasons is that MLAs, do a lot of their work by email using their legislature address, and if you throw it under FOI, uh, all that correspondence theoretically becomes public, uh, and they don't want that. And then, I mean, even if we did have FOI in place now, we, we know from using that act that it would all anything we got back now would be severed for law enforcement or solicitor client privilege, or there's a myriad of ways to to do it. So I, I think it would be a great idea. Um, I don't think any MLA from any party in the building will support it. They'll support it maybe verbally, but they'll never vote for it, and, and it'll never happen because it's their, to their benefit to operate in secret there. Uh, things about their pay, their expenses, their HR matters, you know, their constituency offices, who they're hiring, um, they don't want that out. And so it won't happen, is my opinion. Hmm. That place is so hidebound in tradition uh, that uh, I agree with Rob. It, it, you're not going to see MLAs go for this at all. 
Yeah, I just yeah. I, it would be great. Know. They should. Yeah, I think they should. I just wonder, you know, I wonder if if this would lead to sort of a. I mean, I don't know if it's the sexiest of topics. I just wonder if maybe there'd be public pressure out of situations like this to open it up, and whether politicians would acquiesce. Maybe, maybe not. I guess. Uh, let's take a quick break and pick up this topic again on the other side with Keith Baldry, Shannon Waters, and Rob Shaw here on Inside Politics. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. For Kamloops Computer Center, you're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome. We're talking to Shannon Waters, Keith Baldry, and Rob Shaw uh, about the craziness of the legislature over the last week or two. Uh, one of the major developments on that uh, on that front was the press conference, uh, interestingly enough, held in Vancouver, not Victoria, uh, with Craig James, uh, the clerk, or the, I guess the now former clerk, clerk-in-waiting, I don't know how I phrase that, uh, Sergeant-at-Arms Gary Lenz with their lawyers addressing uh, questions from reporters. There was some interesting stuff said in there, Shannon. Uh, what did you think as you watched that particular spectacle unfold? Well, it was interesting. This is something that um, Vaughn noted earlier this week. It was interesting that Lenz and James were the ones doing the talking there. They handled almost the entire press conference, which is unusual. Often in situations like this, you'll see the lawyers doing the talking. But both men once again said they have no idea why they've been removed, what could possibly have led to them being escorted out of the building last week. They both said they want to get back to work. Um, and the other thing is that they haven't been contacted by the RCMP yet or asked to provide documents or anything like that. So it raises the question of why they were removed last Tuesday. Why all of a sudden um, did that happen? But I think the really big thing here, as Rob noted, is that unless we get some criminal charges that come out of this and, you know, a, a conviction or conviction, we're going to be looking at a really, really large lawsuit in all likelihood uh, at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, Keith, uh, I kind of there's two noticeable themes uh, to you on Craig James. I mean, we're still in the dark about what exactly this investigation is centering on, but Craig James did uh, sort of double down and, and emphasize all the things he's done under his watch in the legislature to ensure financial transparency with expenses, make sure things are accounted for, the money wasn't just magically going missing. Uh, it was an interesting way how he walked through some of that kind of stuff to kind of say, hey, well, listen, why would I take money if I'm busy making sure everybody else is on the up and up? Yeah, it, it was an extraordinary news conference in many ways. And, and you know, the fact that I mean, I've seen a number of criminal investigations on the legislature. I've never seen anybody who's accused of anything actually hold a news conference uh, so shortly after the event uh, to take uh, questions. No holds barred from reporters. No, no lawyer, uh, you know, vetting questions. It's usually the other way around. So these guys came across as very self-assured, very confident in their innocence. Craig James going out of his way to sort of volunteer uh, the the expense aspect, uh, potential uh, component of this, and. Uh, I guess probably because, you know, we've seen expenses at the heart of some parliamentary scandals in the past, notably the Senate scandal of a few years ago, and him pointing out the, the many checks and balances that go on expense claims, a system that he put in place to ensure that um, that abuses could not occur. A former 
uh, cabinet minister phoned me in the middle of this from years ago saying this is uh, completely different when he was in office there back in the, the 80s and 90s. There was very little uh, checks and balances on spending and on expenses. It was, uh, it was sort of the Wild West back then. And the rules have tightened up considerably, big time, uh, since those years. And that's largely at the behest of a uh, result of Craig James' actions. So it would be deeply ironic if something like that was at the heart of this, of, the, of a system that he actually built up to ensure something like this could not occur. Yeah. On the other side, uh, Mr. Lenz, uh, kind of really in a very frank way, emphasizing the damages, uh, not only on a professional level saying, listen, I've investigated these things at the legislature myself. This is how I've done it, which is sort of a contrast to what he's enduring currently, but also mentioning on the family level, listen, this has been devastating for my family, my daughter, things like that. And I kept thinking when he's talking, uh, that perhaps we're seeing a foreshadowing of, of a lawsuit to come, Rob. Yeah, I mean, all the markers are there. There's, you know, discussion of the harm to your livelihood, to your family, to your reputation. There's a request for immediate action to to repair this situation, to try to, you know, prevent some more damage by reinstating them. There's comments from both men that they don't take this, um, you know, so personally that they couldn't come back to their jobs. Uh, everything was there uh, to, as Shannon pointed out, um, put in place the mother of all wrongful termination lawsuits. If we get to that point, it, it would be monstrously large. Um, but uh, it, it, it's a, it was a, there was no answers in the press conference, but it was a fascinating press conference just to listen to both men talk and take questions. And we're, we are left in a situation where you have two highly respected independent table officers who are supposed to be protected from political interference on one side. And then you have the speaker and his aide, and I guess to a lesser extent, Wally Opal, giving us conflicting stories that don't match up. Sometimes we get lectured, sometimes we don't get anything. Um, and, and you're trying to sort your way through this mess, and it's very... It's very difficult. I know people keep saying, well, we must have some idea. I don't think anyone has any idea. I've talked to MLAs. I've talked to staff. I think they're in the dark, and um, we're grasping for straws. That's why we're talking about finances. And I, and I know from covering the 2012 uh, Auditor General John Doyle report that, kicks, that kicked the legislature right in the rear end and said, the books here are so bad, we don't even know if money's missing. From that point on, we went from this backroom system under the previous speakers where a bunch of old white dudes sat in a room and tinkled their scotch glasses two or three times to indicate yes to spending. <laughs> a system now where you have open meetings, you have minutes, you have records, you have audited financial books, you have former auditors and comptrollers on audit committees, you have the auditor general looking over the books every year. I mean, it's, it is night and day, and that was under Craig James. And I, it's, it's just hard to imagine how we could be talking about money um, in this situation, but again, that, that that is just kind of the only thing that seems to be floating around out there. Yeah, although uh, I know Wally Opal may have, uh, I don't know if spilling the beans is probably not the most accurate, but he, he labeled it as a complex criminal investigation, which is probably the most detail we've seen so far. I, 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 I wonder if Wally Opal even knows what he's talking about half the time. <laughs> I mean, I, honestly, I don't think they've done any favors putting him in that office because he's very loose with the facts, which is, he seems are, it's hard to say that when you're talking to a former attorney general and a, and a judge, but yeah. 
I, he may do more harm than good in there. There is no evidence whatsoever yet that this is even a criminal investigation. The, the police have not used that word, yeah. and uh, the press special prosecutors haven't either. So, I, I, again, I don't. I, I wonder if if those comments are going to come back to bite someone as well. Yeah, Keith. Yeah, no, I agree. Wally's known for uh, loose lips and not really sort of making things up as he goes along. We had a couple of scrums with him when he was Attorney General, where reporters had to correct him on the law, um, which. You know, but Wally gets away with that sort of stuff because he's very charming and suave and a great guy and, you know, great socializer. But um, I just think it would be, do well for all three of them to shut up, to not say anything, because every time one of those, those three amigos of Daryl Plekis, Alamon, and Wally all will talk, they tend to contradict each other, and they just basically are pouring, pouring oil on the flames every time they open their mouths. Yeah, and I imagine that the lawyers for both Mr. Lenz and Mr. James are avidly paying attention and transcribing every word, Shannon. Yep, I would imagine so. <laughs> All right, guys, let's take a quick break to the bottom of the hour, get caught up in the news, and we'll continue our conversation uh, with Keith, Rob, and Shannon on Inside Politics right after this. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Holy moly, that was a long commercial break. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Uh, talking to Rob Shaw, Keith Baldry, and Shannon Waters. Uh, can start with you, Rob, on this one. ICBC uh, is on its way to posting an $890 million loss this fiscal year. Uh, the dumpster fire just keeps getting more gasoline. What the hell is going on here? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the first thing I guess people have to realize about that is that next month ICBC is filing its uh, rate application to the Utilities Commission, and you can expect to get walloped on your rates. I mean, the question now is if we are talking double-digit rate increases for the next year, and it's quite possible we are. Um, it's remarkable how much money ICBC appears to be losing, and despite all of the things that David Eby says the, you know, we're required to stabilize the corporation, the cap on uh, $5,500 cap on uh, pain and suffering, minor injury claims, uh, some of the rate redesigns. There was a pilot project announced yesterday on telemetrics. So if you let ICBC put a box in your car that determines how fast you accelerate and how quickly you brake and whether you're a risky driver, you can get a, a better insurance rate. Um, those are not enough to stabilize ICBC. And uh, we're going to be very quickly into round two of unpopular decisions at ICBC because I don't think the New Democrats can allow it to continue to post massive losses and, more importantly, politically for them, massive rate hikes. They promised to stabilize ICBC. Uh, if the NDP had done nothing, the last uh, report we had was that there would be rate hikes of 40%. We may be <laughs> heading in that direction if the NDP doesn't bring in round two of ICBC reforms. And yeah. we know from talking to people that round one was pretty contentious. So. There are dark times ahead for ICBC. It's interesting to listen to the Liberals' muse about privatization, and they brought in, I think there was an amendment, and Shannon would know better than I would, but I think there was an amendment in the ride-hailing bill to try and allow the private sector to sell insurance on ride-hailing that the Liberals brought in and was defeated. So they're already flirting with the idea of blowing ICBC up, and uh, it may become an election issue in the next election. Yeah, there's definitely going to be a political fallout in this for sure, Shannon. 
Yeah, so <laughs> there has been a lot of discussion about ICBC, and I do think that they, they floated this um, private insurance amendment that Rob mentioned. There were many amendments proposed when the ride-hailing bill came up. The Liberals had a lot of changes that they wanted to make. Um, and just going to the issue of, of privatizing ICBC, uh, Liberal Party leader Andrew Wilkinson won't go quite so far as saying that that would be a priority for him, but he has said multiple times, I think the phrase he likes to use is that, you know, you, the utility needs a root and branch overhaul, a, a huge change. He, he talks about, I believe it was at the, um, the recent Liberal convention, he was talking about how ICBC is, you know, from the 70s and and equating it with a vehicle from the 70s and saying, you know, it just doesn't work for the time that we're in now. Um, whether that's true or whether the issues stem from the way ICBC has been managed over the years, I mean, that's something that I think sort of the, the Liberals and the NDP have differing opinions on, but we're definitely seeing that there are issues at ICBC that are not going away anytime soon. Yeah, and uh, worth noting, the Liberals on their watch didn't choose to trade in that vehicle from the 70s either. Uh, Keith, the other side of this, of course, is financial implications a bit of a dead weight on the on the budget update we had this week and god only knows how it's going to factor into february's full-blown provincial budget but this thing's a bit of a, a millstone around the neck of the province well uh, general james finance minister is just lucky that she's got money coming in from other areas that are going to offset ICE, this as you say this millstone uh, around the neck that icbc has become i've been saying for some time i think icbc is going to be the single bit biggest headache the ndp government has the next time they face the electorate, because I think you're going to see, as Rob mentioned, they, they go in front of the Utilities Commission for a rate hike in December. It takes effect in April. It may be double digits. Then, remember, in September, ICBC flips the whole rate structure on its head and changes everything, and many people will be facing a further increase in September after that April increase. And you've also got things like this $50 uh, payment you've got to make for other drivers of your vehicle, uh, yeah. notably your, your kids. Then there will be another increase the following April, and another increase the April after that, and probably some other extraordinary increase in between those two. So by the time we get to the next election, if it is indeed in 2021, your insurance bill may have increased well more than 50% over the last time people went to the polls. And I think the Liberals will be wise to use that as an issue, and I think they will run on a privatization uh, platform uh, come the next election because people, by that time, people's insurance bills will be so sky-high compared to what they were when they last tested the electorate that that is potentially a winning election issue for the B.C. Liberals. Yeah, it is going to be a fire starter for the electorate for sure. Uh, just a quick round the horn before we wrap this thing up. Uh, Rob, anything interesting in that fiscal update that stood out for you? I notice marijuana revenues aren't exactly flowing in yet. No, you're right. Uh, the that there is no marijuana revenue there. And the other thing we often look for in the fiscal updates is whether LNG revenues are being factored into all the rosy economic growth forecasts. And those aren't in uh, the provincial books either. I think Carol James, you know, seems to be doing a fairly good job as finance minister, but she's very lucky in this financial update that once again, we have this bizarre windfall uh, from Ottawa and the way that they you know, accept um, income tax and corporate tax revenue on behalf of the provinces and give it back. And sometimes it is much more than and uh, the government was expecting. And that's, I think it was like $1.7 in the financial update, uh, more than the government was accepting. That allowed the government to look like they've done some incredible things <laughs> to post this massive surplus. Um, it's mostly just an accounting and uh, estimation issue. So 
great times for Carol James. You know, last year we were thinking she was going to have, that was the peak of all her, the cash she was going to be sitting on, and it was all downhill from there. But it looks like she's still riding the top of the budgetary roller coaster, and she's got a lot of room to move. <laughs> uh, Premier John Horgan hailing the ride-sharing bill as the accomplishment of the fall sitting, and I thought to myself, <laughs> that's a pretty low bar, Shannon. Um, yeah, I found that an interesting characterization by the Premier. I mean, he liked to point out that his government has done more in 16 months about ride-hailing than the B.C. Liberals did um, in five years. Um, so that was his line. I mean, I, certainly the public reaction to the bill would not suggest that that was the highlight of the legislative uh, session. And we still don't know exactly when we're going to get um, ride-sharing services, what they're going to look like. Um, so, you know, an interesting bill to pick, particularly considering how busy this session was for how short it was and how many significant pieces of legislation went through the House. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, final word to you, Keith. I noticed in your column this week uh, uh, you are keeping your eye on a uh, sort of a looming education showdown possibly in the new year. Yeah, so I know you got Glenn Hansman coming up uh, next, and it's going to be, I've been, you know, corresponding with him on Twitter from time to time. Um, BCTF talks are always a challenge for a government, and this one's different because you've got a supposedly BCTF-friendly government in place, but the BCTF is the BCTF. They have very high expectations, and the mandate that is, wage mandate has been set, and the nurses just agreed to it. And uh, once the nurses are out of the way, it, really, it basically leaves the TF as one of the last uh, unions standing, and it's a, a, a mandate that calls for 2% increase a year for three years, 2, 2, and 2. Everybody's agreed to it. I can't imagine the BCTF agreeing to that at the, at the beginning of the negotiations. I think they're going to be far apart on wages. And there's also some nervousness, uh, an article written by Hansman on this new funding formula, that it could change the funding mechanism for special needs kids. So there are rocky times ahead. For all the good that's happening in education, there's uh, some tough issues that have to be sorted out between the Teachers Federation and the NDP government. I think there's a lot of nervousness about it on both sides. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, guys, again, thanks for a great show. I look forward to talking to you next week. Take care. Thanks, Dave. There we go. Rob Shaw, Keith Baldry, and Shannon Waters. A quick break. BCTF President Glenn Hansman on the other side. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Pleasure to be joined in the program by the president of the BC Teachers Federation, Glenn Hansman. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Appreciate that. Uh, so let's talk about uh, some looming issues that are going to be happening in the new year. I know you wanted to get an early start to bargaining. That has obviously not come to fruition. Uh, and it seems like, at least on some fronts, there's tensions rising with the province as you head towards bargaining in perhaps, what, uh, late January, early February-ish or something. Maybe you would know better than I. But uh, tell me what's going on out there. I know the new uh, the new funding model is a point of contention. Well, actually, right now, as I speak, Minister Rob Fleming is at the academy for all the school trustees around the province, and he's just made some remarks to the effect that uh, he's hopeful that we'll get a deal done on schedule and before the end of June, and that would be really great. We are actually uh, do have dates now committed with the employer to get going around Family Day, which is uh, not as early as we wanted, but it's earlier than we would usually start, so we're pleased about that. and. 
we have our team in and decisions made and starting to write language. And so we're also hopeful that if we uh, put our nose to the grindstone and there's some goodwill and uh, cooperation at the table, that we can get it wrapped up before the end of June. But um, like you mentioned, there are some concerns being floated around the review of the funding model that the province has undertaken. And a lot of that is going from uncertainty and, and speculation. And in our sector, K-12 NBC, which has had such great difficulties under the 16 years with the BC Liberals, in the absence of having concrete information, it's uh, reasonable to expect that uh, some folks are, are worried. And so the sooner we get some specifics in front of us and the reports made public, that would be really great. Uh, what's the what's the specific issue with the funding model? I, I know that there's uh, special needs students are, are a big part of that, but uh, from the BCTF perspective, what's the concern here as we wait to see what this thing holds? Well, I don't want to sort of um, speculate too much, only that I haven't seen the report, but I do know that the funding review panel was contemplating going to what is called a prevalence model where funding for students with special needs in the system isn't necessarily tied to specific students that are designated, but funding is provided to school districts instead based on how many people there are in the general population that might have a specific disability. So rather than, you know, there are 35 students with autism at this particular school, and money flows to school districts from the province on that basis. Instead, we would look at, oh, there's X number of people with autism in the general population for every thousand people, and money would be allocated that way. There's some pros and cons to both approaches, but what we wouldn't want to see um, is a situation where it's the squeaky wheel getting the grease. Um, it's hard enough as it is to get services for students with special needs, and it shouldn't be dependent upon families having to be constantly advocating for supports to go directly to their children. And so we want to safeguard against that. There's also an uh, interrelation between the current way that students with special needs are funded and designated and the language that we just got back to the Supreme Court of Canada. And since teachers spent so long trying to get all that language back, as folks would understand, we want to make sure that whatever change is made that it doesn't negatively impact those basic guarantees in our collective agreement. And uh, we don't know what the province is going to do yet. It's not necessarily the end of the world. It could very well be that what they decide to go forward with is really great and will result in more service for, for students. And, of course, uh, at the end of the day, money is always a big make-or-break issue when it comes to bargaining. So uh, you've made a very uh, emphatic point that teacher salaries are way behind. You guys need to catch up. On the other hand, you look at other labor deals that the province has reached, some are all along the sort of 2-2-2 two, two, and two category. Will that cut it in this instance? Well, I don't think anyone expects teachers to catch up in one round of collective bargaining, especially if it's only a three-year deal, which seems to be the pattern out there and is generally along the lines of what, what we're seeking. You know, we're, we're definitely not fans of the tenure concept like uh, Peter Fassbender was pushing in the last round. And so we need to have a mature conversation, though, around how to stage this so that over a period of time, a reasonable period of time, we'll finally see teachers in this province paid comparably to their similarly qualified colleagues in other parts of Canada because we do have a shortage in B.C., uh, there are problems with shortages in the private and public sector and other professions, for sure. But, you know, this isn't a matter of 
being able to cancel surgeries or delay appointments. The kids are there, and they need teachers who are qualified and certified in front of them and working with them. And so we need to address this problem, both on the starting salaries and also for teachers who've been in the system for a very long time and also have bills to pay and, and who have been waiting and contribute to the communities. But, uh, you know, aside from the salary piece, for sure we're going to want to look at sort of equity and services around the province when it comes to special ed. The language that the courts gave us back wasn't perfect. Um, back in 2002 when it was taken away, we were trying to fill some holes when it came to class size and class composition language because there are many parts of the province where there are no guarantees in the collective agreement. And all those things drive services into schools for students. And so you could probably expect that we're going to be seeking to fill some of those holes, which um, hopefully we can have a good conversation about, address some of those needs, and get this done before the end of the school year. Yeah, a last question because we're up against the wall here, Glenn. But this for this government campaigned on fully funding education. I guess now the question is, with uh, with how you guys headed to the table, what does that mean in a dollar sense, and can the government afford it? Well, the province has done a really amazing job on making announcements around capital projects for public education, new schools, seismic upgrades. There's still more to do, but full marks to Rob Fleming for everything he's done so far. On all the services that go directly to students, most of the funding flows directly out of our Supreme Court win and putting those jobs back and enrollment growth. And so there's there's still room to go there. Um, the province is debt-free now. It has a substantive surplus. Clearly, there's demands on the health sector side and other areas, too, that need to be addressed. But if we stage things and look at a, you know, a reasonable period of time to start filling some holes and building things up again, that would be a worthwhile expenditure. And ultimately, we're investing in schools and students, which benefits everyone in our communities. Mr. Hansman, always a pleasure to chat and touch base. It sounds like you got your work cut out for you next year. We'll have to see how she unfolds. Thank you. We'll get it done. <laughs> All right. BCTF President Glenn Hansman here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. And that wraps up this show. Uh, look forward to seeing you again on Inside Politics here on Radio NL on next show next Friday. 106.7 Logan Lake, 98.1 Blue River, 97.5 Avola. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM. Local news now.